Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Marsha Gordon. Marsha is Professor of Film Studies at North Carolina State University and was previously a fellow at the National Humanities Center and a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar. She is the author of numerous books and articles and the co-director of several award-winning short documentaries. We will be discussing her latest book, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott, published in Berkeley by University of California Press 2023. Marsha, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Ari, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for taking the time. There are many people you express gratitude to in your acknowledgments. Is there anyone you'd like to publicly thank? Is there anyone who specifically helped you that you would like to convey appreciation to? First, thank you for this question. It's such a generous, wonderful way to start because any book that anyone ever writes is not a solo enterprise. It could not have been completed entirely on your own, even if you're doing the bulk of the heavy lifting. And so there are so many um, contributing individuals and institutions that make a book happen. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to acknowledge a few of those. Um, You started off by mentioning in my bio, both the National Humanities Center and the NEH Public Scholar Award that I had. And and I just want to say, if it were not for that the time that both of those fellowships gave me, which they gave me two years back to back to just research and write this book, plus at the National Humanities Center, which is located in the Research Triangle Park of North Carolina. I had access to unbelievable librarians who dug up so much incredible material for me um, from the archives and from libraries. And so that time and space given to me by those fellowships is the reason this book exists. Um, so in terms of people, the archivists and librarians at institutions all over the country, too many to name, I name many of them in my acknowledgments, um, they are the ones that gave me the, the gift of materials that I could draw from in the book. And, and I was doing a lot of this research during COVID. And so I couldn't get on a plane and you know go to Washington State or New York and go to the archives myself. And so what was really incredible was that um, uh, without an exception, archivists scanned materials for me um, so that they could just email me PDFs and make things accessible to me that I could not get to during COVID. And that was so appreciated and such a gift. And um, the final one individual that I'll mention is Raina Polivka, who's the acquisitions editor that I worked with at University of California Press. Um, Because nobody has heard of Ursula Barrett. And because until very recently, none of her books were in print, this was actually a very hard book to get published. Um, 
had a lot of rejections. I worked with an agent. We had a lot of rejections from trade presses who said, wow, this is so interesting. Um, what a great story, but how can we sell a book about a woman no one's ever heard of uh, who hasn't, you know, nobody's read her books. And uh, that was pretty dispiriting. And to have a, an editor go, this is an amazing story that's so important to tell. We are going to take a risk on this material. We are going to help you make a beautiful book. And then we're going to help you push it out in the world was such a gift. And so I really credit Raina and her faith in the project with, um, you know, kind of saving this manuscript from, <laughs> from, you know, just sitting on a, uh, on a computer hard drive for the rest of its life. So, um, so thank you again for the opportunity to acknowledge some of the people that made the book happen. Before asking some of the body and content questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Southern California and uh, interestingly enough, you know, not far from Hollywood and uh, was always a movie lover. My mother and grandmother were also movie lovers. So I watched a lot of movies, went to a lot of movie previews. Um, when I was young um, at the mall, they would be handing out like free passes to movies that hadn't been released yet. And you would have to give feedback on the movies and that helped them decide if they needed to you know, change an ending or uh, rewrite the script in some way. Um, so I would say that exposure was influential just in terms of laying a groundwork of both interest and curiosity about film history. And so um, I did my undergraduate at UC Riverside and my PhD at University of Maryland, um, both in English departments that had film and media studies faculty with whom I worked. And so I um, feel really fortunate to have had this opportunity that to learn about, um, I would say, literary and cinematic culture in both a broad and very specific way in terms of my scholarship. And so Ursula Parrott is a really interesting figure for me because she was a writer, best-selling author, um, you know, wrote, published 20 books and over a hundred short stories and serialized novels. But she also worked in and with Hollywood, both out of their New York branch uh, of, of the studios in Astoria, in the case of Paramount, and then also in Hollywood. Um, and there were 10 movies adapted from her work. So she's kind of a perfect hybrid figure for my interest in terms of bridging um, literary and film scholarship, and then also all of the issues of um, about gender and um, identity in the early part of the 20th century. So, um, so she's, she's kind of this, uh, when I, when I realized that this was going to be my next book, I was like, wow, this is really like, I've been preparing for this book my whole life. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Yeah. So the first one is easier to answer than the second. Um, so I, I was looking for a next book project, you know, just kind of keeping my eyes and ears open as I do. And I always keep a document on my computer where I write ideas, most of them really bad that I will never end up following. But um, I'd actually been asked to give a talk at Penn State. And I went to dinner after the talk with Jim West, who is um, one of the foremost scholars of F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he mentioned at the dinner that there were these unpublished, unproduced F. Scott Fitzgerald screenplays that were in the archives at University of South Carolina, of all places, in Columbia. So not in LA, not in New York, but in South Carolina. And um, 
So as it turned out, I was asked to give a talk at University of South Carolina, and I made an appointment to look at these F. Scott Fitzgerald screenplays. Lo and behold, the one that I choose to look at, which was called Infidelity, um, was based on an Ursula Parrott story. So MGM had hired F. Scott Fitzgerald in 1938 to adapt this Ursula Parrott story. And I wrote in my notebook, um, who is Ursula Parrott? And um, that was a question that I ended up starting to answer by, you know, Googling her, looking up what had been written about her, which was pretty much nothing except for a master's thesis um, and a bio bibliography that had been um, finished in the 90s. I bought a used copy of Ex-Wife on eBay because nothing was in print. And I read Ex-Wife and I thought, oh my gosh, this is a sensational novel. 1929, originally published anonymously, huge bestseller, adapted into The Divorcee with Norma Shearer in 1930. And I thought, okay, this woman is fascinating. And she's literally disappeared. Like nobody, I asked my friends who were serious American literature scholars, they had never heard of her. And I thought, okay, this is a woman who deserves a biography. And I had never written a biography before, although my last book, which was about the, a director named Sam Fuller and his war films, had a lot of biography in it. And so I was kind of moving in that direction. And I really wanted to write a book that, you know, had great kind of scholarly chops, well-researched, all of that, but was really written for a general readership. So I always said to myself, I want, want to write a book that my mom would actually want to read, um, who's not an academic, by the way. So, so I wanted to write in a very um, accessible voice um, uh, to tell the story of this woman and to try to help bring her back into the conversation and, um, you know, perhaps even into the literary canon. And and as fate would have it, uh, McNally Editions uh, republished. Ursula Parrott's 1929 novel that I had to dig up on eBay um, called Ex-Wife. They published it uh, like two weeks after my book came out. I had nothing to do with it. I was not involved in any way, shape or form. It was like the universe delivering a gift to um, to Ursula from, uh, you know, who was maligned and, and ignored for so long. And so now people can read that novel again. They can teach it. They can research it. So, um, again, it just seems like all these kind of forces conspired to to create an opportunity to bring Ursula Parrott back into the conversation. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Yeah, so um, first off, there's so many because this is a book, one of the pleasures of writing this book was realizing that telling the story of a life, of this particular woman's life, allowed me to also dive into all of these other conversations, issues, debates that were happening over the course of her life. So she was born in 1899, kind of at the tail, very tail end of the Victorian age and came of age in the early 20th century, um, you know, was a, was a teenager during World War I, um, went to uh, Boston Latin Girls School, which was a very progressive um, uh, female offshoot of the venerable male institution that required parents who were going to send their daughters to the school to commit to sending them to college if they wanted to go to college, which, again, this is a pretty progressive um idea for the 19 teens and um 
she went to Radcliffe. Um, and uh, so that's just a couple of examples of places that um, I could do this kind of deep dive into what was it, what were the educational opportunities like for women um, coming of age in the 19 teens. Um, so trying to understand what the national landscape was like, what the regional landscape was like, and then what did those universities think that women were going to do afterwards? Um, so for example, uh, what I realized was like, uh, although my um, kind of immediate reaction was like, oh, that's amazing that these institutions thought like, okay, we're going to educate women and then they can have these careers. Well, a lot of the rhetoric from within the institutions was not just about that, but also about how you know, they'd be much better wives and mothers if they had educations. Their husbands would find them more interesting to talk to. They would raise better children. So it's not like there's some radical break that all of a sudden there's women's education and it's like, okay, go off into the world and have great careers. But there's always this kind of you know, a couple steps forward and one step back. And so that's one thread, um, uh, you know, uh, just thinking about uh, the nature of publishing in this time period, life in places like Boston, New York, and Greenwich Village, um, thinking about the way women writers were characterized, marketed, reviewed. That was a really interesting learning curve to look at someone like Parrott's and I've continued to think about, you know, how she was kind of came off in the press, you know, put put her alongside someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway or William Faulkner, whose um, Sound and the Fury was actually marketed alongside Parrot's ex-wife. And so uh, there are all of these um, different kind of themes and issues that I was able to explore as I was writing the book, um, not the least of which was the way marriage and divorce was changing in terms of public perception, in terms of um, the kind of legal infrastructure, in terms of the way it was imagined in books and in movies. Um, and so uh, that was a, a really interesting part of the project for me was was because Parrot was married and divorced four times, which ex-wife was based on her first divorce. Um, she was really uh, she was really aware of uh, both as a kind of social issue um, because she would talk about it in interviews and in her nonfiction as well as in her fiction with what it meant to live in a time where women no longer were expected to marry for life when men were no longer expected to marry for life at least we're talking about in the major urban centers places like New York where she lived. Um, or you know Hollywood, where uh, everything was a little bit different, right? Um, so, so those are kind of some of the major overarching topics and themes of the book. What are the similarities and differences between Ursula's psychological profile and those of her female characters? Um, I love this question because one of the interesting parts of writing this book for me was to go from having you know never read anything by her to starting with ex-wife and then in part because I had these fellowships and I had the time I decided I was going to read everything she ever published so I am probably the only person on this planet who has read every published findable book collection of short stories um you know serialized novel etc by Ursula Parrott and what I realized from doing research about her life, from reading her surviving correspondence, um, and then reading these novels and stories was that 
she absolutely wrote from life, but she was not writing nonfiction, right? She was always writing fiction. And so I began to see where her life and her stories intersected. And, and I will just, I mean, the book is filled with these kinds of observations, but I will point to one kind of um, key point of connection and divergence. So um, Ursula Parrott had a son named Mark um, in her first marriage, and um, her husband was not keen on having children. He thought it would um, impede his career. He was a cub journalist at the time and put a strain on their finances. Um, and so uh, when they divorced, she ended up raising her son pretty much on her own with the assistance of her father and her never married sister um, and you know household staff, right? She became very wealthy um, after the publication of her book in 1929. So she um, often wrote stories about women raising children on their own. And, you know, keep in mind, this is in the 1930s, like the concept of single mothers is not what it is today. This, um, this idea of women who had to work to support their children, who had to make all of the major parenting decisions, and um, in Parrot's case, who were really committed to this idea of raising children in a modern way, to be um, intellectual, to be well-traveled, um, to not be emotionally dependent in the way earlier generations had, um, which was partly a methodology of convenience and partly one that was really based in a philosophy of kind of modern, progressive, independent um, child rearing. And so a lot of her stories are about imagining what it was like to be these children of um, unmarried or many times married or career women um, uh, that was often rather uh, heartbreaking. These stories are really sad. They're about children who wonder why they don't have fathers. Where's Where's dad at Christmas? Where's my Christmas present? Um, uh, you know, why is my mother getting married again? And so she really played out a lot of, I think, her anxieties about single motherhood in these stories. And so I found it very moving to read uh, a kind of more open externalization of um, of the things that she worried about in these stories than I did in her letters or her interviews in which she puts on a very good public face about um, how she's raising her son and how she spends time with him and the private schools she sends him to. And so that's just kind of one point of both intersection and um, divergence from her stories. The final paragraph of your book is as follows. I am convinced that Ursula Parrott was right, that it would have been significantly easier for her to be now than it was a hundred years ago when many of her ideas and actions seemed untenable, off-putting, even outlandish. But as she struggled to make sense of the messy modern world and her, her place within it, she helped shape a conversation about women's lives during turbulent years of consequential change. If her inconclusiveness on these matters was as unsatisfying on the page as it was in her life, perhaps we should recall how she accepted this uncertainty, but marched on nonetheless. I'm sure I cannot tell whether the professional woman is happier 
than the wife or less so, she admitted. But of one thing I'm sure, if we are able to make anything out of our mad era, we must face the facts and see them as we see them and piece out the salvation of our individual existence. Why did you choose to end your book with these specific words? Why did you select the specific quote from Parrot that you conclude with? Can you explain why you feel this way about Parrot? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I tried to remember as I write, as I wrote the book, and that I think I find maybe most inspirational about Ursula Parrot is that she she was really brave about airing her um her sense that things were not things were really hard for women in particular that there were structural inequities that uh that disproportionately made it hard for women to succeed kind of in every avenue of life, but especially if they were trying to do it all. They were trying to have successful careers and be good wives and be good mothers, that there was just so much, um, it's so taxing. It was so impossible. This is such a, you know, 2023 conversation, right? Like how do you do everything you're expected to do as a woman and to do it well? And I love that she was out there talking about these things, writing stories about this in the 1930s. I found it so brave. And I also found it brave that she didn't say, here's the answer. <laughs> you know, she didn't know the answer. She had a hard life. She made a lot of mistakes. Um, she, she struggled with alcoholism. She struggled with failed marriages and disappointments and financial ruin and a lot of ups and downs. But she didn't really um, shy away from sharing those failures and disappointments with her readers, certainly um, with those who were uh, close to her. She was kind of an open book. And what I love about that quote is that she's basically saying, like, we have to grapple with this. We have to talk about this to pretend that there aren't these problems, you know, that we give women the opportunity to have educations and careers and to earn as much, if not more than men, but we don't deal with what that will do to a marriage, right? We don't have an answer to how that's going to disrupt a longstanding sense of like male superiority and control and, um, and so uh, to me, that honesty, that sense of like just wanting to have to start conversations around these issues, I, I found that very moving because I think that's a very hard thing to do now. And I can't imagine what it was like almost 100 years ago. And so that's why that's why I end with those words is because I think that's a that's a, a beautiful mantra about her bravery as an individual and as an author and as a public personality. Which of Ursula Parrott's works is your personal favorite? Um, okay, that's a really hard question. Um, but I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with one called Breadwinner, um, which I'm actually really trying to get somebody interested in republishing right now. So as of this moment, the only Ursula Parrott novel in print is um, Ex-Wife from 1929. Um, Breadwinner, uh, Parrott wrote as a serialized novel that appeared in Red Book, 
uh, starting in October 1933 through February 1934. So it's like a short novel, like a novella. And it's about a, a young woman raising a child on her own. She's a widow, not a divorcee. And she starts off like in a secretarial position in New York, um, and she ends up becoming a screenwriter, an incredibly successful screenwriter. And she goes back and forth to Hollywood. If this sounds a little familiar, it's because Ursula Parrott based a lot of her stories on her own life. And um, she uh, buys a house in Connecticut, which Ursula Parrott did to um, you know, raise her son in this house and to give him a, a nice country life so he didn't have to live in the city. Um, in this case, it's a daughter and breadwinner. And she falls in love with this man um, when she's just starting off and he falls in love with her and the stock market crash happens and he ends up losing his job just as she becomes richer and richer and more successful and more successful. And it um, he can't get past it. He can't uh, accept her success and his failure. Uh, and so he says he can't marry her, but that he's happy to have her as his mistress. And if he ever makes enough money one day to get his pride back, he'll marry her. And so it's this really interesting story. I mean, there's a little kind of sex in the city going on here in terms of like life in New York um, in the 1920s and 1930s, which is really cool. All the locations and bars and restaurants. Um, there's also all this Hollywood stuff and screenwriting that's in, um, in the novella. And then there's this stuff about all of these issues that thread throughout Parrot's life, motherhood, um, uh, relationships with men, uh, you know, navigating work-life balance. The protagonist in this novella is exhausted all the time. She works 12-hour days and then goes home and tries to make herself beautiful and then tries to, you know, go out on the town and stay up till midnight with her, um, you know, rotten boyfriend. And so uh, I really think this is a, a very timely novel. Um, and I think in some ways, it's kind of her great Gatsby, because it's really about this time and place, but it's centered on a, a female heroine. So I would love to um, get someone interested in republishing that. What is your book's contribution to American literary history? Well, I hope its contribution is that it's putting someone back on the map who should never have been off the map. Um, so I think one of the interesting things to consider is the way certain authors are canonized, um, are, are taught, are part of the conversation, um, are read over and over again. And, you know, in this case, I will use, it's very easy. The easy jazz age novel to use here is Great Gatsby, right? Which sold like a quarter of the number of copies that Ex-Wife sold um, on its initial publication, but ended up having later, like in the 1940s, unbelievable advocates who were pushing for what a genius novel it was, who were very influential people um, who helped get it republished and get it pushed into university classrooms. And then there's a filtering down effect right into high schools and even into junior high schools, which is where I first encountered The Great Gatsby. So I hope that what my book has done is even though it's belated, right? Um, I, I, I hope that it's giving people the opportunity to consider taking Parrot and her writing seriously. And since Ex-Wife is available, um, 
to consider bringing it into their classrooms and um, to seeing how it teaches in courses on American literature and women's literature and film and literature. And so, um, yeah, I really hope the contribution is that, you know, in 50 years, uh, when somebody's uh, having a conversation and they they mention, oh, yeah, like an ex-wife, people will know it the way when people say like, oh, like in Great Gatsby, you know, uh, people recognize that. Can you comment on Ursula's economic and financial situation? How did it fluctuate? Sure. Well, she was raised in a upper middle class, um, but, you know, uh, aspirational kind of upper middle class um, Irish uh, family doctor's house in Dorchester, uh, which is a suburb of Boston. And so the family had, um, you know, uh, two housekeepers who she ended up keeping on as her own when she could afford to do so. Um, you know, again, she was sent to private school and to, you know, to, to Radcliffe for college. Um, they owned property, but they were not, you know, these were not like the upper crust of Boston. These were, um, you know, Irish, you know, first generation Irish immigrants who had worked their way up. Um, so when Parrot was first divorced, she had to get a job in a department store, advertising department, writing advertising copy. And she worked her way up the chain and started making a little more money and a little more money. But then when she published this book, I mean, this is one of the craziest, craziest coincidences of history. Um, I remember just being so stunned when I realized it, but her first big paycheck came in October of 1929. And I'm sure your listeners know that is the month of the stock market crash. So she became insanely rich just as the country was, you know, beginning its slide into the Great Depression. So she had all of this money and she loved to spend money. So she um, loved travel. She loved clothing. She loved jewelry. She loved being out on the town. She liked buying cars. So she was a spender and she was not good with money and claimed she never had been. So she struggled a lot with her finances um, and had a hard time when she uh, was not meeting deadlines, when she um, began struggling, especially in the 1940s with um, kind of mental and physical health, with drinking, um, when she was having a trouble meeting deadlines and she was not making as much money, she really got into financial holes. So she is definitely a rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall story. So she really hits rock bottom um, by the end when she um, is trying still, she always tried to get back on her game and to start writing again, but she, um, you know, she, at some point that didn't work anymore. And, um, and she was left really with nothing and she died, you know, um, with nothing. Can you tell us about Ursula's literary agent? Sure. Well, he's such an interesting part of the story. His name was George by, and, um, he is a very well-regarded, he seems like a lovely human being based on everything that I read that she wrote to him and that he wrote to her, um, uh, his correspondence is at the Columbia university archives. Um, so he was literary agent to people like Charles Lindbergh and Eleanor Roosevelt. And, um, so really major, uh, public figures and writers of the time. And, um, like Parrot, he had a house in Connecticut, um, outside of the city. So they would spend a lot of time with each other out in the country. They actually were co-founders along with some other people like Haywood Brown of a rural Connecticut newspaper called the Connecticut Nutmeg. Um, 
and again, he was just, I think he was very much like a father figure to her. He really tried to look out for her best interests. I was so happy to see in letter after letter between them that he was not exploitive. That he was so kind to her. He was so caring. He was really a friend to her. And he really tried when she was making mistakes to get her back on track. He really tried to get her to be fiscally responsible. Um, uh, he really expressed care for her when he saw her you know, drinking too much or making bad decisions. And so he was just a lovely, lovely um, friend and and um, I think a really fantastic agent for her. And, you know, keep in mind, uh, she made him a ton of money. You know, she, whatever his commission, his 10% or 15% on all of the publishing, and she was making seven, 10, $15,000 for um, publishing her short stories and serialized novels, you know, during the depression. This is a lot of money. So, um, and he really loved her writing. I mean, I have letters uh, uh, that he wrote to her when she turned in a particularly good story that, you know, in which he talks about how beautifully written, um, how moving the stories were and how, you know, her voice was so strong. And so he was very encouraging and um, very caring and, and a very important figure in her life. And when he finally walked away from her um, in the 1940s, when, um, you know, he just uh, really struggled to get her to to stay focused and to make her deadlines. And she had made just one too many uh, mistakes and missed one too many things. And he said he wanted to preserve their friendship and, and felt that he needed to resign as her agent. And she, you know, she begged him not to, because he was so, he was such a stabilizing force in her life. And she was someone because of her, um, kind of, uh, wild and, um, you know, um, sometimes extravagant, um, impulsive ways. She didn't have a lot of stability in her life besides her sister um, and her agent. And so he was very important to her. You write as follows on page 227. If you were to sit down and read reviews of Parrot's novels and stories by many critics of her day or casual characterizations of her by commentators and columnists, you would expect her writing to be maudlin and romantic, her plots filled with champagne and late nights, dancing at the smartest nightclubs, flowers and weddings, babies and country homes. But her plots are possessed of these elements only to prime her characters and her readers for disappointment. The often trivializing evaluations of her work by critics of her time indicate how much she was misunderstood, making it less surprising that she is all but forgotten today. Can you elaborate on what you're referring to here? Sure. Well, I think one of the problematic and fascinating parts of, of American literary history is that, you know, tastemakers, canon makers, who decides what is important, what is a great, what's the great American novel and what is not, have historically been men and they have historically privileged male writers. Now there have been some exceptions to that, but by and large, this is just a fact of American literary history. And so I was really surprised to see, for example, um, Parrot and Fitzgerald both having short stories appear alongside each other in edited volumes in the 1930s. Um, uh, both of which were characterized as anti-romance romance stories. But Parrots was about these two young 
kids who take a liking to each other and bond because they're children of, of divorcees and they're trying to figure out how to navigate life in a boarding school where everyone else has two parents and they just have mothers. And um, Fitzgerald's is like a very, very romantic story. And I remember reading those stories thinking, if you had like said that a woman wrote Fitzgerald's story, it would be classified as a pure romance story. Like this is a romance story. And I mean that in a derogatory way, which is the way the phrase was used at the time. Um, but because it's a Fitzgerald story, um, it has been elevated to great literature um, that uses the romance genre. And I was really struck by the fact that that is what Parrot did her entire career. There are a few stories that Parrot wrote that are actual pure romances that were just, in my mind, written for, because um, she needed some money and she wanted to crank out something that the magazines would be drawn to. But by and large, the stories she wrote create this kind of infrastructure for romance. You know, a woman and a man meet, they fall in love. And then after that, everything falls apart. So for example, the woman um, uh, you know, has a career that makes her vastly more successful than her male counterpart. Or maybe she marries because she uh, works as a waitress in a diner and uh, meets a rich man who comes in and convinces her that he's gonna take care of her even though she has no passion for him, um, but she can't forget the man she really loves. So yes, there are romantic aspects of that, but she's really getting at these other kinds of economic um, professional quandaries that, uh, that she's using these stories to engage with. But if you read critics of her day, they often dismissed her. Um, there's, I always think about this New York Times review of Ex-Wife, which, you know, acknowledged the, the novel's contributions to kind of capturing the, this I, novel idea of the divorcee as a, or the ex-wife as a, a kind of new category of woman. But the, um, the author, the male author of this review says, you know, basically like, oh, I left the book out on the couch and my wife and her girlfriends came crowding around it and started turning the pages. So that was meant as an insult, right? Um, it doesn't come off as an overt one, but it is because it's, he's basically saying this is a, a book made for only women to read, that they're, they're the audience. And that was a, a denigration. And so uh, I think that there's a lot of conversations that can be had around the way that literature has been um, categorized, um, perceived, and then sometimes dismissed um, in ways that are really um, more telling about the kind of chauvinistic attitudes of a given time and place than they are of what the actual content, the literary content um, and quality is. Can you tell us about Ursula Parrott's experiences in the film industry? What does your book teach us about the history of the American film industry? Yeah, so so this is such an interesting time in film history, um, this period that she enters into it. So her the first adaptation of one of her works was in 1930 with The Divorcee, which earned Norma Shearer, her only Academy Award. Um, and, and as I said, there's 10 adaptations total. One, um, one was a remake in the 1950s, Douglas Sirk's There's Always Tomorrow. And um, what's really interesting about this period is we talk about the um, pre-1934 movies as pre-code. So what happens in 1934 is that there's this production code 
that gets enforced within Hollywood. Um, and the production code was um, was meant to basically stem off the possibility of government censorship of, of motion pictures. There was um, a concern being expressed, especially by um, organizations like the um, Catholic Legion of Decency, that Hollywood movies were too violent, there was too much sex, religion wasn't treated with respect. There's all of these kind of um, categories that they were complaining about. And so the production code um, forced the major studios to hand over their scripts before they went into production to make sure there was nothing offensive in the movies. And that starts getting seriously enforced in 1934. In 1930, there's kind of a baby step towards that. So Parrot comes in 1930 with her stories about divorcees and about women um, having sex outside of marriage and about um, all of these issues that were really difficult to, uh, about abortion, um, that would have been impossible or difficult um, to address even in 1930, but really impossible after 1934. So uh, it was really wonderful to get the opportunity to look at these films, to try to understand Parrot's involvement um, in their adaptation uh, when I could find that information and think about the way her arrival on the scene in Hollywood just coincided with this moment um, in film history where things were changing and becoming more conservative. Um, uh, and the way that she is this like voice in some ways of like radical representation, especially for women's lives and to see the way the films reflect that and what can and can't get made. So I, I talk about There's Always Tomorrow, which um, most people, if they know the film, um, know the 50s adaptation with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. But the earlier adaptation of that film is so interesting because it's a tale that's really ready-made for the era of the code, which is it's about a, a career woman who never marries because she doesn't have time. She's too busy becoming a successful fashion uh, designer. And she decides to go back to check in on her old sweetheart who's happily married with a bunch of kids. And the conclusion of the story is that she decides to leave him with his family, even though she knows she can take him away from his family and fulfill this aspect of her life that she's given up. And that's a perfect code era story because it ends with the moral high ground. There's no intimation that anything ever happens between the two of them. In fact, they have like tea and sandwiches together every night, you know, when he's pretending to be off at his man, men's club. Um, so it's like an impossibly chaste scenario. But um, so I think that um, the bottom line, the kind of uh, takeaway is that her writing and her ideas um, uh, get filtered through this really interesting uh, lens of of you know walking a line between um, wanting to represent kind of modern women and these modern issues and needing to kind of tread carefully around those issues given the production code. Where, when, and under what circumstances did Ursula do her best writing? What were the most fertile environments for her creativity and productivity? Um, that's such a nice question in terms of um, thinking about her uh, self-conception as a writer and her literary life. Um, and actually, I talk about this a lot in the book, but one of the things she was really committed to was kind of an authenticity to her stories. She wanted her stories to take place in real worlds. So it's one of the reasons she often set her stories in New York 
or Boston or Hollywood, um, but most of all in New York City. She also had a bunch of Caribbean stories. So she traveled a lot. Um, she traveled to Russia where she um, ended up using uh, Russian um, uh, settings for a number of her stories. So she really believed in um, uh, traveling as a way both to kind of stimulate her, um, she loved travel. She loved the way she felt when she went to new places and saw new things, but she always traveled with writing in mind. Um, so she always went places and took notes or started writing her stories when she was traveling. Um, she liked that change of scene and she really especially liked um, creating universes that were authentic as she um, proceeded to do this. So when she couldn't travel, she took very seriously the process of making her stories authentic. So she she talked about in um, in one of her letters that she went to the library in New York for four days to do research about Manchuria for one train station scene in Next Time We Love because she wanted to get the details of the train station right. So to me, that speaks to a seriousness of literary purpose. Um, she loved having time for revision, um, but she was also good at writing to deadline um, until she wasn't. Uh, so uh, the magazine editors she worked with at places like Cosmopolitan, um, which Fitzgerald also published in and Red Book. And um, uh, these editors really admired her ability to turn in good writing on schedule and to revise when necessary you know, until she missed the mark. And um, I, I, one comment she made in a letter, I, I was really impressed by this, which she was talking about the fact that she was feeling like she was being pigeonholed as a, as a magazine writer um, in a derogatory way, like as opposed to uh, writing the great American novels um, or writing for the small circulation, but prestigious literary magazines. And she said, look, the Russians, you know, wrote their best, most famous work for newspapers and magazines. Like, why can't I? So um, so that's just another kind of uh, great anecdote about about the way we choose to perceive certain writers as writing great literature and others as not. What does your interest in Ursula Parrott say about you? Hmm. Um, I have not been asked this question before. Um, I think there's a few ways to answer this. One is... In terms of even undertaking this book, which um, I was on a, a podcast recently where I described my decision to decide to write this book as kind of an exercise in insanity because like what made me think I could write a book about a woman nobody had heard of who has nothing in print and actually get it published, but I just had kind of faith that it would work out in the end and it and it did, but you know, that I guess in that way, it says that I'm uh, stubborn and a risk taker when it comes to uh, to picking projects. But I think more importantly, what it says about me is that I think one of the things that I've realized over the course of my career is like, if you don't take on the marginal figures and try to do something with them, who's going to, you know, like I saw I saw a story that I, I felt was it was unjust that it had not been told. And, um, you know, I could have very easily walked away from it. I could have very easily written another book about F. Scott Fitzgerald, right? There's hundreds um, and had a very easy time getting it published and reviewed and all of that stuff, you know, with these unpublished screenplays or unproduced screenplays. 
But I took the harder route and I'm really glad that I did because I think, again, uh, it's like if we don't tell these stories, who's going to tell them? As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you're working on next as your current project? What are you working on now? Yeah, well, I always um, like to have a lot of projects going on um, uh, uh, of, of different varieties. And so um, maybe I'll just talk about briefly talk about three of them. One is I'm finishing work on um, the fifth edition of an introduction to film textbook. It's called Film, Form and Culture. My mentor in um, at University of Maryland, Robert Kolker, wrote the first four editions, and he brought me on for the fifth edition update. So that's been a really interesting learning process. To, um, textbook writing is really different than all other kinds of writing and really different from writing a biography for a general audience. So um, I'm wrapping that up. Um, I am at the beginning of um, uh, I, what I think will be my next book project, um, which is a, a biography of Dorothy Arzner, who was the only woman who directed film for a major studio in Hollywood between the late 1920s and the 1940s. Um, I, I was astonished to realize that nobody has written a biography of Arzner, kind of as with Parrot. Um, uh, there is a wonderful book that came out in the 70s by Judith Main um, about Arzner, and there have been a couple edited collections that are you know, academic books about her films, even though they weave in biography. But she is a very interesting figure. And again, she was like the lone woman working in um, a very male at the time industry. And so I think that's a pretty important um, story. So I think that's going to be my next book project. Um, and then I'm at the beginning of work on my next short documentary project, which um, is going to be about a, um, a Hungarian immigrant uh, to uh, to Baltimore and then lived on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., named Alexander Bogardi, who um, was a cosmetologist, a devout Catholic, and uh, a visionary artist. Uh, and so he's a fascinating figure and a uh, and I'm in kind of pre-production on that short documentary project as well. Wow, I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, don't be be impressed if I actually get everything done. <laughs> I will be. <laughs> as we bring today's dialogue to a close, uh, I wanted to end by thank you from the bottom of my heart for your availability, your time, your eloquence, and your erudition in our dialogue today and for all that you sacrificed for the benefit of readers who will grow immensely from engagement with Ursula Parrott. Well, thank you, Ari. That's very kind. And thank you for so many questions that I have not been asked before. I really um, appreciated and enjoyed having this conversation. Thank you. I feel that it takes someone with a very big heart to write a book like this. Oh, thank you so much. As we bring our dialogue to a close today, I am your host, Ari Barbalot, saying thank you to Marsha Gordon. We have been discussing her newly published book, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott, published in Berkeley by University of California Press 2023. Marsha is Professor of Film Studies at North Carolina State University. She was a past fellow at the National Humanities Center and a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar. She is the author of numerous books and articles and co-director of several 
award-winning short documentaries. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you, Ari. Have a good day. Thank you.